Nathan said to David, you are the man. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you, as we always do, to join us here in this place this morning. And we trust that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm about to tell you a story that I've told before. I've even told this story in a sermon before. Ordinarily, I wouldn't do that. But I told it in a sermon that I preached at a different church. And as I recall, it actually resulted in a parishioner bringing a big, giant, Costco-sized box of Oreos to my house after the service. So I'm going to go for it again. It is a story about Oreos. Anyone who knows me well will know that I have an overwhelming love of Oreos. I've always had this love. If I were to stop for a second and think about the number of Oreos that I've consumed in my life, it, it gets really frightening. Um, don't, by the way, let that stop you from bringing me Oreos if the Holy Spirit so moves you. Um, my mother used to keep a jar of Oreos in the kitchen. They were not for us. They were for our housekeeper. She liked Oreos a lot and she would get Oreos, but they were there and they were in this really old, nice glass container. So I had to get really good through years of practice, silently sneaking the glass lid off the container, taking the Oreos out. And then the difficult part is silently putting a glass lid back on a glass container. And this worked well for a number of years. My, my strategy was simple. My parents would ordinarily be reading in the living room and I'd be in my room and I'd walk through, through the living room, then into the kitchen, grab a couple of Oreos and go down to the basement and eat them at my leisure. But one day, one particular occasion, I found myself already in the basement wanting to go to my room, but also wanting to get some Oreos on the way. I knew I was going to have to, after getting the Oreos, walk through the living room where my mother and father were reading. Luckily, I was wearing a baseball hat. Now, if you're an Oreo-stealing genius like me, you've probably already guessed my master plan. I lined the entire inside of my hat with Oreos, placed it carefully on my head, and walked through the living room. You know, with Oreos all in my hair, like a totally normal person. Now, what happened next is a little fuzzy. I don't remember exactly what happened. Perhaps my mom and dad started a conversation with me, or perhaps, you know, overcompensating in order to prove that nothing shady was going on. I started a conversation with them. But whatever happened, I ended up in a conversation with my parents. No big deal. Played it totally cool. But the conversation went on long enough, and one thing led to another, and I totally forgot that I was wearing a hat full of Oreos. <laughs> and eventually, I got a little itch on my head, took my hat off to scratch it, and you can imagine the scene. Oreos came tumbling out. We all sort of stood in frozen, shocked silence. And there I was, completely without excuse. 
And we all have moments like this. You have. You, for one reason or another, have been caught completely without excuse, just like I was. And how I felt with Oreos pouring down around my ears has got to be exactly what David felt hearing Nathan point the finger at him and say, you are the man. In our reading from 2 Samuel this morning, frozen to the spot, standing in shocked silence, totally without excuse. Our reading, which comes from the end of 2 Samuel 11 and the beginning of 2 Samuel 12, is actually the middle part of a very incredible story. Most of you will be familiar with the overarching flow of the story, but it is worth a quick retelling this morning, as it's really the whole story that sheds light on the bad news of the human condition and the good news about the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ who is the bread of life. So the part of the story that everybody knows is that David is the king. He's looking out his window one day and sees a beautiful woman on a neighboring rooftop taking a bath. This is Bathsheba. David falls in love with her, brings her into his house, sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. Now, unfortunately for David, she's married to a loyal soldier in his army, a man named Uriah. So David calls Uriah home from the front, hoping that Uriah will do the natural thing, come home, sleep with his wife, and then believe that the child she eventually bears is his. Uriah, though, is so loyal to his soldiers that he refuses to go in and sleep with his wife while his men are sleeping away from their families out on the battlefield. Now, frustrated and still wanting Bathsheba for himself, David sends Uriah back to the army with a sealed letter for his commanding officer. And this letter instructs the officer to send Uriah to the front where the fighting is most violent and then pull back from him so that he's killed. The commander does this and David's plan works. Uriah dies in battle. This is where our reading picks up the story this morning. David and Bathsheba are now husband and wife, and they have a son. And one day the prophet Nathan comes to the palace, and he tells David this story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has many sheep. The poor man has only one. And a traveler comes to visit the rich man, but instead of killing and slaughtering one of his own sheep, he takes the one ewe lamb from the poor man and gives that to his visitor instead. And David is indignant. He's angry. So angry, in fact, that he reacts to Nathan's story. He is obedient to the law. He says the sheep should be restored fourfold, like Moses said. But he also says that that man deserves to die. David is burning with righteous indignation. Moses, for him, the law almost isn't enough. David demands death. But then Nathan turns the tables on David, calling him out. You are the man. We're going to get to that in a second. Before we get to Nathan's rebuke of David, I want to look quickly at our reading from John chapter 6. 
which comes in the aftermath of our reading from last week, the feeding of the 5,000. These people come and find Jesus the next day. And they ultimately ask him for a sign that he's the one whom God has sent. This, of course, just after seeing the miraculous feeding of an enormous crowd on just five loaves and two fish. And as an example of the kind of sign they'd be interested in seeing, the people mentioned that for their ancestors, God provided manna in the wilderness, bread from heaven. And this is how Jesus responds. And I think this will help us hear extra clearly the good news that Nathan eventually has for David. And by extension, for you, for me. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Hearing this, the gathered people say to Jesus, sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus says, That wonderfully comforting phrase, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This juxtaposition that Jesus points out between Moses, who he says did not give bread from heaven, and himself, Jesus, who is bread from heaven, will help us hear the good news that God has for sinners like you and like me and like David. So Nathan confronts David, tells him this little parable about rich man and poor man, and David responds, even though he overdoes it a little bit, calling also for the man's death, he responds according to the law, according to Moses. The man in the story has, been, has transgressed, And should be punished. Return that sheep fourfold according to the law. And also, he should die. But then, David's righteous indignation blows up in his face. He finds himself caught. Completely without excuse. Nathan says, that story was about you. You are the man. Bathsheba is living in your house. And her husband is murdered. And it is you. This, my brothers and sisters, is us. We hear Nathan's story and we want to think like David. That's a bad guy. We think we ought to respond according to the law. In the Bible's vernacular, according to Moses, we get righteously indignant. But eventually, we all get to a place where we're standing in front of our parents with Oreos all over the floor. We're standing in front of a spouse who can't believe what we've done. We're standing in front of a boss who's going to have to justifiably fire us. We're standing in front of a courtroom and the judge has just said guilty. We're standing exposed, wondering how on earth it ever got to this point. 
God has sent us a Nathan. And our sin has been brought to light. And we are completely without excuse. We are the man. We are the sinners. We have done the thing we ought not to have done. We have not done the thing we ought to have done. This is the bad news. We are, like David, actually guilty. But then, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Six words. Six words that change everything. I have sinned against the Lord. This is confession. And it comes after being found out. It's the turning point. You are the man, says the prophet. And our proper response is yes. I am the man. I have sinned against the Lord. Now that's the last sentence of our assigned reading this morning, but it is by no means the end of this story. In fact, it's not even the end of that verse. Our reading literally ends halfway through the verse. I want to read to you the whole thing. 2 Samuel 12:13. David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, "The Lord has put away your sin." You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. How precious those words must have sounded to David. And how precious they are to us. These are the words you need to hear when you've been caught out. When you find yourself completely without Excuse When you've done the thing you thought you'd never do. Or failed to do the thing you promised yourself you would do. When someone is standing in front of you, pointing their finger at you, and they're right. When there's no excuse to get you out of it. When your sin comes to light. When you hear you are the man and it's true. Then... All you can do is confess. But the good news of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that because of what Christ has accomplished for you, confession always leads to forgiveness. Every single time. Confession turns bad news to good news. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Because Jesus has died for you in your place. This is the gospel. The gospel is good news for sinners. It is good news for those of us who have no excuse. The crowd gathered around Jesus in the aftermath of their miraculous feeding, begged him for a sign. And in response, Jesus told them that Moses couldn't feed them. He wasn't the one who gave them bread 
in the wilderness. That was God. Moses alone, as a stand-in for the law, can't offer new life. The law, on its own, can't save you. Only Jesus can do that. Indeed, he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never be hungry. And whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. But listen, it's not just that Jesus has the bread of life to offer you. Jesus is the bread of life. He gives himself to sinners so that they might live. On the cross, he was made sin so that sinners could live forever with God. If anyone sins, wrote John, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the perfect offering for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ is the bread of life and has made his perfect offering for you. The Lord has put away your sin in Jesus name. You shall not die. Amen.